Welcome to Where I Come From, a podcast devoted to Nebraska sports figures and the life experiences that shaped them. I'm your host, Dirk Chatlin, and this week's guest is Ricky Simmons, former Nebraska football wide receiver, recovering cocaine addict, drug and alcohol counselor, and motivational speaker. We talked about why he was scared of the woods in Greenville, Texas, how Tom Osborne outsmarted Barry Switzer in his recruiting process, the 1983 scoring explosion, his fall into addiction, and the letter from Osborne that changed his life. It was a very racist town. I mean, you go hunting and you might be the person that's being hunted. I was going to go to Oklahoma. My dad stood up and said, we're going to Nebraska, and then he pulled his pants up about his chest and balled up both fists and started walking toward me with his fist balled up, and I just made a business decision. I started bagging up until I couldn't go back no further, and then I realized, go Big Red. <laughs> Cocaine convinced me that football was getting in the way of my using, so I basically retired from the NFL to be a full-time drug addict. I live my life every day to make my parents in heaven proud because they never got to see the Ricky that you're looking at. This is where I come from. Now, Ricky, now 10 years ago, you were in prison, your mm-hmm. third stint in prison mm-hmm. um, on drug charges. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, the, the effects of a cocaine addiction that had been following you for 25 years. Absolutely. What happened? Good question. Uh, I don't have the typical story. Yeah. Uh, most people with my story would tell you, well, I didn't know my dad or I grew up in a rough neighborhood. That's not my story. Uh, my parents were both school teachers with master's degrees, very educated people. Uh, yeah, your dad was a principal. Right. And uh, they were actually uh, married 50, 53 years. Wow. And uh, before they both passed uh, 12 years ago, and they passed within three months of each other. Uh, so I don't have the typical story, but to answer your question, what happened was at 16, I became a genius. You became a genius at 16? At 16, I became a genius. Uh, I actually became the smartest human being on the planet. <laughs> yeah, you couldn't tell me nothing because I knew everything. Right. And what I mean by that is I was smoking a little weed or trying to drink alcohol. Alcohol used to have a more serious effect on me than it did my friends. I I was that guy that could only drink a couple of beers and then you had to carry me. Right. You know, so I didn't wasn't much on alcohol, but I could smoke and I smoked and I smoked and I thought that was pretty cool at sixteen. You know? So that's how that genius thing came. Now you're up. from um, you're from a, a little town outside of, outside of Dallas. Yes, Greenville, Texas. Greenville, Texas. Yeah, that's and I'm going to be honest with you, I've never heard of Greenville, Texas. Well, you got to get in line behind a billion other people. <laughs> it's a very small town, one high school town. Um, I uh, I take a lot of pride in being from Greenville because there's so many others before me and since me that have done big things from Greenville. But Ooh. Well, Mike Thomas was NFL Rookie of the Year in 75. I mean, uh, I got other other people like uh, Curtis Trailer and his sister Carolyn Trailer. They're, you know, they're professional. Carolyn's a gospel singer and and uh, Curtis is a R&B singer over, over in Japan, actually. Huh. I mean, so, I mean, and it, there's so many more. I mean, I wouldn't it'd take the whole interview to name everybody, but those just the two that jumped off top of my head and I mean there's just people from my neighborhood that 
that uh, were very, very positive people. And unfortunately, you know, only thing that got credit was the negativity. Yeah. Now this is 19, you know, at, at 16 years old, it's 1977, yeah, something like that. 75, 76, somewhere in there. Um, what was the, what was small town Texas like at that point? Very, uh, very difficult to say the least. Uh, I'm actually from a town that uh, when I was in the, First grade, well, actually, all the way up through the third. I think in the third grade, the governor of Texas made them take it down. There used to be a sign hanging across the banner, a banner hanging across the the, the entrance to downtown, say, "Welcome to Greenville, the blackest land, the whitest people." The blackest land, the whitest people. Correct. I mean, uh, what did that? What, well, what, they, what message were they trying to communicate? Well, I mean, it's pretty obvious to me, but I guess. In defense of them, they said it was because the soil was was black and it was good for growing cotton. But uh, I was born at night at one twenty nine in the morning, actually. But it wasn't last night, so I know better than that. I so mean, it was tough for a young black kid in, in oh, absolutely, Texas. yeah. I mean, uh, I I joke with people to this very day because they they ask me stuff like, "Man, you want to go hunting or fishing?" Well, see, when I, when I was a kid, I wasn't allowed to go in the woods. Hunting and fishing is something I've never done. Uh, hunting and fishing, we didn't come back from trips like that. Uh, so it was. So you heard about kids in your in your town that? Oh, I mean, it was a very racist town. I yeah. mean, you go hunting and you might be the person that's being hunted. Right. What did your parents think of that? Oh, I mean, my parents were very educated, so they, they they rose above that. You know, they just made sure that we put ourselves in a position to not let stuff like that happen. Like, hunting and fishing was off limits for me. I had to stay in the backyard. Don't put yourself in situations where you might get hurt. Exactly. You know, so to this very day, I, I joke about it. Uh, people ask, hey, man, you want to go hunting and fishing? I'm like, yeah, we can go to High V and hunt and fish all you want. You know, that's my mindset because I have no interest in going in the woods. And I, mean, I know it's 2018, but I don't care. I mean, I'm not going in the woods. There's no reason for me to be in the woods. It's not comforting to live live with that sense of fear though I'm not afraid I call it being smart if you know your limitations and your boundaries you stay within them right and see that's what took me so long it took me 25 years to figure that simple concept out that's why I do what I do to this very day I mean that's why I'm a licensed drug and alcohol counselor and a motivational speaker actually a substance abuse motivational speaker is because I want to educate the youth in particular but I will do adults as well on the dangers of drugs and alcohol because no one wants to look at it until after a tragedy happens. Then all of a sudden everybody, woe is me, um, you know, it was my child was a good kid. Well, you know what? Small town America versus the cities, they're all the same now. The internet leveled the playing field. Our youth are really being misled. They don't know it. Misled by what, Ricky? They're misled by all kinds of things. I mean, technology misleads a lot of kids too. A lot of these kids, I mean, they, they're not making a big issue of it right now, but, I mean, look around you. How many people you see that are not staring at their phones all the time? I mean, that's, in the drug world, if you keep doing something over and over and over, not only is that insanity, that's a, that's a problem. That's addiction. Well, every day, people are staring at their phones over and over and over. I mean, I, I don't know how that's so, such a hard connection to make. 
you're worried about what's on those phones or you're worried about or you're worried that these people just can't break the habit and, and that's an addiction in itself that's a, an addiction within itself i mean even if they're they're studying science or if they're studying doing their homework that's great but i i don't know a kid that does that much homework yeah i don't i mean maybe you do but i don't who were your influences Grow, you know, growing up who who my, was who were your primary influences my parents Clyde and Bertha Simmons, they are uh, excellent role models, didn't smoke or drink. Uh, they were, I mean, they were the perfect example of what I wanted to be. Your dad was pretty tough. Oh, my dad was a World War II vet and he was a very no-nonsense type guy. Actually, he, uh, I joke about him in a lot of my speeches where he, uh, he talked at the top of his lungs all the time, but I think it was just his military background at that point. I mean, everything was elevated in his voice. World War II vet, so he was older when yeah, you were born. Right, yes. My dad was, I was like, I think he was like 40 plus when I came around. So he was just, but he, he was the type of man that he wanted to do all the things that he had to do before he started this family thing because he knew what he was going to have to devote to the, to the family concept. How did you come to Nebraska? wasn't by choice. Uh, there was a... Um, deal where everybody in my hometown we grew up we all wanted to go to Oklahoma because it was three hours from from where I live and the University of Texas was four hours so a lot of my high school teammates and a lot of guys I played against in high school they were all Sooners and I wanted to be a Sooner as well and uh, I was actually getting ready to sign with Oklahoma when the uh, doorbell rang and uh, I went to the door kind of really in disgust, just ready to get rid of whoever it was. I was kind of tired of the recruiting process, and, uh, and it was Tom Osborne. And uh, I didn't know who he was at the time, so I was kind of dumb. You know, I, I just told him basically that I think it snows where you're at, and I, I'm not <laughs> going to be able to do that, you know. And uh, I actually thought he, at first, initially, I thought he said he was from Alaska. I was like, I know I can't go there. So basically what he did was uh, he talked to my parents. And uh, all the other schools were offering material things. And that's what I was impressed with. My parents were not. Coach Osborne was the only person that came there talking about education. When you're talking to two school teachers, I mean. so uh, He always recruited mom and dad. Yeah, well, he and he did a wonderful job in my case, which, you know, I can honestly say, Hindsight, it was the best decision I never made. I mean, because to this very day, I actually saw Coach yesterday. He's uh, He's been in my life, uh, and he came through as, at a time when I really needed him to. So your parents made the decision for you, or you made it for yourself? No, my parents made it. Did they? Yeah, I was going to go to Oklahoma. My dad stood up and said, we're going to Nebraska, and then he pulled his pants up to about his chest and balled up both fists and started walking toward me with his fist balled up, and I just made a business decision. I started bagging up until I couldn't go back no further and then I realized, go Big Red. <laughs> so that's how I got here. You were a big time high school receiver or running back? Running back. Yeah, that's what yeah. I thought. Yeah, I led the state of Texas in rushing after 10 games. Um, we ran a Vera offense which was similar to the wishbone. I wanted to be one of those wishbone backs where you just pitch it to me and let me get to the edge and then it's a foot race. You wanted to be Greg Pruitt. Pretty much. Or Billy Sims. You know, I mean, that was that was my mindset at that time because that's what I specialized in. And 
Uh, apparently, it didn't work out that Do way. Do you remember uh, did Switzer come to see you too? Yeah, he did too. I mean, and and, and he was a good man. He he just catered to the to the kid versus to the parent. You know, he said, you know, material things. and Like what? Ah, uh, well, you know, <laughs> I really don't want to put nobody on blast like that. But It was different back then. Yeah, huh? it was different. Yeah, I mean, it was just, you know, material stuff. Right. Yeah, so right. I'll just leave it at that. What are your your introduction to, the, to Nebraska? Do you remember it? Uh, actually, I was quite shocked because I came out for uh, fall camp in August and I had never been here before, so I, uh, again, 18-year-old genius, I I assumed that because every time I saw Nebraska play football on TV, it was always snow, Yeah. I assumed that it snowed 365 days a year, right. so when I got here in August and saw it was nice, I was like, what? You know, I had this place all wrong, yeah. you know, so that was kind of a, a shock to actually see Nebraska not have snow. Now, you played freshman team in 79. Yeah. Redshirted in 80. No, I redshirted in 81, actually. Oh, 81, okay. Yeah, as, as a true sophomore, I, I started kick return okay. for Nebraska. And then uh, I figured out very quickly that uh, running back wasn't going to be something I could do. They initially brought me here as a wing back, but that, to me, is a high-class lineman. <laughs> you know, and I, I just... I couldn't do the physical part of being a wing back, which is a lot of blocking right. defensive ends and stuff. I couldn't do that. And then I wanted to play running back, but some of the linebackers that we, we had just on our team alone was like Steve Dam Kroger, McCord, those guys. Then on the ends, you got Derry Nelson, you got Jimmy Williams. Those are not the type of people I was trying to make contact with. I was, you know, I avoid. I like to avoid people like that. Because you're what? You're five nine, one seventy five, something like that. I was actually. I showed up here at five ten, one fifty five. Oh wow! Yeah, and uh, I mean, by the time I was a senior, I was one seventy five. But I mean, it was it was a process, and I just I wasn't built for the contact. I was built to outrun people. Do you remember meeting? Um, you know, Rozier obviously came a little bit later. Yeah, Ro- he, he, he was a year from, he, he was just a year behind me. Do you remember, you know, meeting Turner and Irving? Yeah, they were actually a year behind me. Yeah. I came in with Roger Craig, Nate Mason, there you go. Craig Holman. I mean, that was our starting freshman backfield. And then we had Dean Steincooler up front, uh, John Sherlock. Pretty good. Yeah, we had some good people, trust me. But then the next next season, uh, Rozier came from the J.C., Urban Fryer came from Mount Holly, New Jersey, and Turner came from the Fort Worth area. And Remington was already there. Yeah, Remington was already there. Remington was actually a year ahead of me. Did you know, I mean, those were some huge names. You yeah. Know, Roger Craig was not even a starter. Uh, yeah. Because Mike beat him out. Right. Um, and, you know, he goes on to a great NFL career. Did, did you recognize that, hey, this is, this is sort of the beginning of something special here? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, the thing about it was I knew everybody at that time that came here, I knew that they, everybody was with somebody from wherever they came. You know, they were the best in their state or best at their, in their district or whatever. We all knew each other's, you know, high school histories. Uh, the thing was, I didn't have any way of knowing what it would lead to in the future. No, none of us did. I mean, it was really kind of, really, really pretty awesome just to watch that process. Yeah, describe that. I mean, when you got here, 
those were pretty frustrating times for Nebraska. You know, they, they, they couldn't really get over the hump. Uh, Osborne is kind of struggling, beats Oklahoma in 78, and then loses to him in the Orange Bowl in 79 was not so good. Right. Uh, and then the offense kind of changes. Yeah, well, I think that's a big part of, uh, and this is the way it was told to me by some of the players that were here before me, that's why we, you know, I think Coach Osborne ventured off into Texas and places like that, and Jersey and whatever, to get people with a little more speed on the, for the skill position. Yeah. Because that's how Oklahoma was was beating Nebraska. It wasn't up front. We were we were we were we were handling our business up front, but they would get us on the edges, you know. So I think we kind of took a page from their book and went and got some speed. And Turner was pretty big in that process. Yeah, Turner was a Turner was a was a great addition. Actually, my roommate that came from my high school with me was Nate Mason, who's now deceased. Nate was really the the quarterback of the future, and then yeah. he got injured, and Turner came in after he got injured. So wait a second, you and Nate were high school teammates? Yeah, me and Nate been been playing ball together and against each other since we were in the fifth grade. Really, I grew up with Nate. Yeah. We were roommates for five years at so Nebraska. So you were a package deal. Yeah, huh? we both. Well, actually, I signed with Nebraska, and Nate was still undecided. Okay. He was kind of leaning toward Baylor. And uh, then about a week after I signed, then he switched and, and, and signed with Nebraska. Huh. So you registered in 81. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's when Turner takes over. Yeah. 82 and 83 are really special seasons in, yeah. in Nebraska history. Well, that that was my junior and senior year. What, what, do you, what stands out to you about, about those years? Uh, I think Penn State got us my junior year. <laughs> uh, I think they, I think uh, there was a play down by the goal line, a couple yards out of bounds. I, they caught a pass I thought was should have been uh, waved off. And then the next play, I think, was a trap in the end zone. I, this is my personal opinion, but... You know that game is on YouTube, and uh, it's it's pretty high level football. I mean, that was a big time, a big time atmosphere, and, and obviously two great teams. It's it's fun to watch even thirty five years later. Yeah, well, they went on and won the national championship that year. I think my junior year, and uh, then we started the senior year off with the first annual kickoff classic at uh, New York Giants Stadium in Meadowland, and it was against Penn State. So we, we took care of them right quick. <laughs> First game of the season started off with a twelve and zero run, number one team in the nation for twelve straight weeks. What is your favorite memory of that season? Because you know you're you're an offensive player on that team. Mm-hmm. Uh, you score you score eighty four at Minnesota. Yeah, but that was about you know me and Coach Osborne <laughs> talked about that. A lot of people gave Coach Osborne flack about that. He didn't run the score up. That wasn't. I, I got to defend him on that one. We could only carry so many players on a traveling squad. And the first team, actually, he brought us out to, you know, after the score kind of got out of hand, he took the first team out. <laughs> the backups ran the score up. Right. Showing, trying to show the coach that they wanted more playing time. And by the end of the uh, third quarter, beginning of the fourth quarter, those guys kind of got tired. So he had to put us back in. <laughs> but that, you know, I mean, well, we didn't go up there to try to – Hang 84 on them. That it's was, funny because, you know, 84 is a lot now, but 84 was really a lot back then. Yeah. Teams yeah. did not score nearly as many points as they yeah. score now. Well, see, our offense was built uh, on a power style. Of, uh, I think they call it smash mouth football, which yeah. versus today is a lot more kind of spread. Yeah, spread out. And 
you know, you trick people a lot, I call it. But, uh, you know, it's kind of like uh, every year when we go down uh, to Tulsa and play in this former Husker against former Sooner golf tournament, the former Sooners are always telling us, like, we knew exactly what you guys were going to do. We just couldn't stop it. And that's kind of what we hung our hat on. We, you know, we were, we were just a, we were a physical team. Did those Oklahoma games mean more to you than the other ones did? Well, you know, actually, it's kind of funny. I mean, yeah, they were big games. I'm not going to deny. But I was playing against a lot of my high school friends. Yeah. So, like, in between plays, we were talking, you know, like, after blow the whistle, plays dead. It's like, man, when you going back to Greenville? Like, first chance I get, what about you? When you going back to Sherman, you know, or Garland or whatever, you know. So we, we were just buddies, man. And we're still buddies to this day. What what did college do to your, uh, you know, to your drug and alcohol use? I can't blame that on college, because uh, um, you were doing it during college, though, right? I, I I smoked some weed, yeah, I did, you know, and I drank a little bit, but that was about it. It wasn't serious, huh? No, it wasn't serious. It was like a little recreational thing I would do, but uh, my problem started after I left Nebraska football. That's when my problem started. So you leave and you leave after the Orange Bowl at eighty. Uh, the 84, 84 Orange, Bowl. Orange Bowl. Yeah. Uh, and you go into the USFL. Right. I went to the Washington Federals. That's who drafted me. And that's where my problems started. What happened? Uh, got involved with a, a couple of guys on the team that was uh, doing cocaine. And I didn't have no knowledge of what cocaine was, but... You didn't know what it was? I mean, I knew what it was, but I never did it. So I didn't think it had anything to do with me. And I actually liked these guys. We were teammates, and so they were doing it one night, and I tried it. And the only difference is I got hooked. And from that point on, I, you know, I was like, uh, I couldn't stop. I mean, I kept playing sports, but I was when I wasn't playing football, I was getting high. We're talking about like every day, pretty much? Every day, all day, all night, you know. And then I would stop to go, naturally, to go to practice or go play a game then after that back to getting hot could you could you effectively play football too? oh yeah I, it didn't I mean actually uh, cocaine enhanced my my ability to to play uh, strangely as it sounds uh, I I was already a pretty hyper guy and then that stuff hyped me up even more so now I went from running four, three, fives, probably to running four, three flats. I mean, I'm like flying around this place. So that actually gave the impression that I was actually better on it. At some point you hit the wall though, right? I oh mean, yeah. You, I, you can't do it anymore? Yeah, well, I did it all the way through the USFL. Uh, first year we were we were Washington Federals. Second year we became the Orlando Renegades. And then after that season, uh, we we tried to go head up with the NFL because we used to play in the spring, and we tried to go to the fall and play, you know, compete against the NFL, and that didn't work out for us because the NFL had all the TV rights, so our league folded. Well, after that season and, and the league folded, then I got free agent picked up by Atlanta Falcons, and uh, in my first camp with the Falcons, I'm a full blown addict and don't know it, and I. Uh, I'm in Atlanta thinking about getting high versus playing football. And before I ever got to play in a, a game with the Falcons, cocaine convinced me that football was getting in the way of my using. So I basically retired from the NFL to be a full-time drug addict. 
it's amazing how many guys during that time period, mm-hmm. you know, the mid '80s, late '80s, mm-hmm. were going through that same stuff. I mean, it was mm-hmm. it was just rampant in professional sports. Well, see, the thing is, uh, I mean, I don't blame it on anyone else. I I take full credit for it, you know, because no one made me do it. I, you know, I chose to do it, and that's just part of the consequences of, of bad choices. And that's the one thing to this very day. Accountability is huge with me. You have to be honest with yourself. I mean, it'd been different if someone was holding me down and making me do it. But it was my choice. What's hard about that is sort of the shame that comes with it. Yeah. Well, the good thing I, I would say about that is, yeah, there's a lot of shame and embarrassment. But the way I was raised came back into play afterwards, after I finally got my life together. So I'm not ashamed of it anymore. I'm not proud of it, but I use it now as a platform to go help our youth and adults. But my point is, when you're going through that, oh yeah, when you go a th- sense of guilt, right? Oh yeah, you feel bad, you know, because you let a lot of people down. You know, you. Uh, I think I felt the worst because I was letting my parents down, yeah, and I knew I was letting them down, and I couldn't stop. You know, I mean, they never turned their back on me, but I could see the disappointment in their face. In both of them's face when they would see me. Ricky, did this go on for 25 years? 25 years. How does 25 years pass living that way? I don't know. I, I say to this day, because uh, today I'm a spiritual man. I believe in God. I'm not religious. Uh, I'm not the guy that's going to make you go to church or make you read the Bible. But I personally believe in God. And uh, I just believe that God saved my life. And he spared my life. Because... Uh, 90% of the guys that I was doing all that with, probably 90% of them are not here no more. And the ones that are here, they don't know who they are. I mean, it had an effect on them. And as you can see, uh, I don't have those same effects, and I'm naturally still here. What did you do for 25 years? Like, for, you know, from 1984 to, 19, to 2009, what were you doing? I was just living. I mean, my parents were still pr- pretty much supporting me, so I always had a place to stay. You know, uh, I just, I would do little random jobs every now and then just so I could get a little money. But I knew a lot of people that were doing drugs, so drugs was just always everywhere I went, there they were. Were you here? Uh, no, I was in Texas. I came back here in, in oh, see, when I come back here, oh, six. Yeah, oh, six. I was down in Texas in oh, four and oh, five, taking care of my parents. And then when they both passed, I, I moved back to Nebraska. And then you got... You got, got in more trouble. You got arrested once you got up here. Yeah, because I was still... What happened here? What happened up here? I just couldn't quit using drugs, you know, and I didn't want to stop. Didn't have a reason to stop. And after I lost my parents, that was a good enough excuse for me to continue using. So the only option for me was prison. Your dad had a hard time with your addiction, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, he was not happy with me. He just loved me unconditionally. And that was for my mom as well. I mean, they both just loved me unconditionally. They were not happy with what I was doing, but, you know, they, they couldn't bring themselves to turn their back on me. Did they ever turn Did they ever turn, turn you away? Mm-mm. Never once. I mean, they were... They must have thought about it. Oh, they, I would have, you know, but they just didn't ever do it. I mean, they never once said, Ricky, you're not welcome here no more. They never said that. You know, they, now my dad, he would, he would, he was very disgusted. He was very upset. He was like, you know, and he would, 
I would have moments. I mean, when I say 25 years, I wasn't high for 25 years. Right. I'd have moments where, right. you know, maybe a month or six, you know, six months of clean times and I relapsed. But during one of my clean periods, you know, we had a little conversation one day and he was, he was like, I don't understand, man. He said, you had everything in the world. You know, why, why, why would you throw it away for that? You know, I mean, it just doesn't make sense to me. Help me understand. And there was really no logical explanation I could give him. You guys never really connected on that, huh? Well, we connected on it, but I just wasn't trying to hear it because I was smarter than everybody else still. I was still suffering from being a genius. Yeah. You know, that, that genius stage lasted just as long as my addiction did. Because I don't know, I mean, anyone that's an addict will, can attest to this. I mean, your thinking is different when you're using. You're not clear-headed and you're not making good choices. You know, a lot of guys uh, that never do drugs, you know, they, they can usually put together some good choices and maybe build a life for themselves. An addict, his only thoughts are how to get more drugs in a lot of cases. I mean, you have some functioning alcoholics that can actually stay on a job for 30 years and drink every night. But then you got some alcoholics, they, they, they just end up on the streets or homeless because they can't quit drinking. What, what, was, what was rock bottom for you? Rock bottom for me was losing both my parents. Um, it didn't stop me from using at that moment because I lost them in 06, but... I used that as an excuse to keep using because I felt like now nobody cares. Right. Who cares? What difference does it make? And on the cool, I'll be honest, I didn't care either. And when I lost both my parents so quickly, I almost wished that I, that I could have went with them. So I just wasn't, I didn't have what it took to take my own life. I, I, I wasn't that guy. But I was contemplating it. And I was thinking about it, but I just didn't have the courage to do that. You know, I guess for lack of words, I just couldn't bring myself to take my own life. So I was just basically existing and I'm sitting in prison, you know. Which uh, which teammates were you still in touch with during all that? Uh, Mike Rozier stuck by me the whole time. Um, there was some other guys, uh, Russell Gary stuck by me. There was, you know, Rodney Lewis. There was quite a few guys that stuck by me, but I pushed most of those guys away. Really? Because I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want my bad choices to affect them. Okay, so you are, uh, you get picked up here in Lincoln. Yeah. Uh, in 2007. Seven, I went to prison here, yeah. And a year later, you're in Tecumseh. Yeah. At the state facility down there. Right. And out of the blue... You mm -hmm. get you get a letter, yeah, from Tom Osborne. Totally out of the blue. I hadn't talked to Coach in twenty years, if not longer, and that was right about that time where I could have went either way. And what I mean by either way is, if if I had got uh, killed in prison or something bad happened to me in prison, I I, I really didn't care. And uh, one day I was. I got a letter, and I I, I I really don't even know how to explain this part because I wasn't expecting any mail from anybody because the only two people that would have wrote me was my parents, and they both were in heaven. So I just like, you know, when, when they said I had mail, I thought they were joking because my cellmate was getting a lot of mail. So I figured it was his letter. 
So when I picked it up off the floor to put it on this bunk, I looked at it and it had a big red N in the corner. And it says Nebraska Athletic Department. And I just, you talking about, now you talking about some shame. There is some shame for you. I was like, oh my God, Nebraska. How did they even know I was here? You know, and then I finally got the courage to open the letter. And when I opened it, it was only like a paragraph. It said, uh, I memorized it. It said, Dear Ricky, I know your parents believed in you. I believe in you. And up on your release, if there's anything I can do to help you, feel free to contact me. And it was signed Tom Osborne. After reading that little short letter, I fell on my knees and I turned my life over to God. When I got up off my knees, my thinking started changing because of the fact that there was someone still believing me because I thought after my parents, there was no one left to believe in me. And when, when coach reached out, I mean, to me, that, that was life changing. And from that point on, I wrote down three things that I still live by today. The first one is PMA, it stands for Positive Mental Attitude. Treat people the way you want to be treated. But the key to that is don't look for it in return. And what I mean by that is, if, say, for example, if I say, hey, man, hey, Derek, how you doing today? And you look at me like I didn't say nothing to you. There was a time where that would create a confrontation. Now, if you if I say, hey, Derek, what's going on? And you, you ignore me, I laugh on the inside and say, wow, it sure sucked to be him because I didn't do anything to him. See, so my whole thinking changed. And then the second thing I wrote down was uh, you got to have a plan. Uh, the plan was real simple for me. I wrote out all the details while I was in prison. It was like, I'm going to get out. I'm going to become, I'm going to go back to school, become a licensed drug and alcohol counselor. So you knew this, huh? I already had this wrote down before, before they released me. And then after that, I'm going to also become a, a substance abuse motivational speaker and go all over the country educate youth and adults about the dangers of drugs and alcohol. And when I got out of prison, oh, and the third thing was uh, you need motivation for the first two. And I call them haters. I got a ton of them, and I love them. Because as long as they're hating on me, they, they inspire me and motivate me to continue doing what I'm doing because no one thinks or thought I could do what I'm doing. Where do you hear from your haters? Oh, uh, I don't hear from them. They just talk behind my back. You just know they're there. I know they're there. They're, they're like they're like vultures on a limb. They're just sitting there waiting on something to die. And I'm not going to give them the satisfaction of seeing that. So they don't know without even saying nothing. They're inspiring me. Ricky, I'm thinking about this letter that Tom Osborne wrote. Yeah. Uh, he must have heard that your parents passed away, huh? Yeah. Well, see, that's one thing I can say about Coach. He's not, the, you know, he's not like me in that respect. I mean, Coach does a lot of stuff behind the scenes. I'm all out front. You know, Coach, uh, he, he has his sources. So he knows what he needs to know, and he knows people to find out what he needs to know. But you'll never hear him say anything or throw it in your face. He does it in his own little way. I know your parents believed in you. Yeah. See, he, he didn't already done his research before he reached out to me. Now, how he knew where I was and how he knew that I was in a bad way I don't know that. I don't have the answer to that. But he did, like I told you during the recruiting process, he recruited my parents. And he came and sat in my house So in Texas. He knew where I came from. He knew that I didn't come from the projects. And I didn't know my, he knew I had a strong family structure. And they believed in me because they looked past a lot of material things. I passed a lot of material things to come to Nebraska. And it wasn't because of Ricky's choices. It was my parents' choices. And he knew that. 40 years later, though. That's what I'm saying. 
I mean, and truth be told, I don't know if any other coach would have done that from any other school. That's why to this very day for the last nine years, once a week, I go see Coach Osborne. And it's not about paying him back. It's about being accountable. I, walk, I walked in yesterday, same thing. Hey, Coach, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing good, Ricky. How are you? I'm like, I'm doing great. He's like, have a seat. I'm like, nope. He's like, what's going on? I said, well, I just came to let you know that uh, I'm still using you for a reference and I'm still doing what I do. He says, well, we've been hearing good things, and when they call here, Ricky, we'll be waiting on them. All right, Coach, see you next week. And you go see him every week? Every week. <laughs> Two minutes. It's called accountability and respect. Because if he hadn't wrote that letter and sent it in when he did, I don't know that I'd even be sitting here talking to you doing this interview. Did that start correspondence between you two, or did you, you know, did you let him know that? When did you let him know that it had had that effect on you? Oh, I told him a couple of years later. You know, so I it, mean, it took a while. Yeah, it took a while because I didn't. You know, I mean, I was still sorting through things. You know, and plus, I didn't want to say that and then not have nothing to show. Right. You know, I. You know, it came out one day in, in, in one of our little two minute meetings. I was getting ready to leave. He go, hold up for a minute. I was like, yeah, what's going on, coach? He says, I've been hearing this and hearing that, and you're doing this, and you're doing that. That's really, really, that's impressive, you know. I'm like, well, coach, I'm, 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 I'm just getting started, you know. And then we next week, you know, he's like, I heard this, I heard that, you know. So, I, I earned the right to, you know, to I, I wanted to earn my credibility back with him, because if it wasn't for him, I probably wouldn't have. I don't know what I've done. So you dropped to your knees in that cell in Tecumseh, huh? Yeah. That's where it started. Yeah, that's where it all started. Turned my life over to God. Because I, I figured out, finally, that Ricky's way wasn't working. Transformation is hard, Ricky. Well, it's hard. I, how, yeah, how, how do you just flip a switch like that? Well, like I said, I was raised right is the first thing I can say. And, and I have a strong faith. I believe that, you know. See, a lot of people, when they say it's hard like that, I'll use me, for example, I don't like to put other people out there, but when I used to say it was hard to, to change or stop, it was because I really didn't want to. So I don't know what other people's motives are, but, you know, that was my, man, it's hard, Dad, I can't stop, I just, I can't help myself, you know, that's because I didn't want to. But when I finally figured out that, you know what, my way ain't working. You have to have moments of weakness. Nah, not really, because what I did with that was I structured my time, my days different. You know, good thing God gave us 24 hours in a day and not one year at a time. I get 24 hours at a time, and I can manage those 24 hours. I'm really good at that. And as long as I keep that concept, I I feel pretty good. I mean, I see, I see people still struggling. I mean, I... Uh, I don't watch a lot of TV because I don't quite understand why negativity is so positive and gets so much attention. But the little time I do watch TV, I see, you know, I see what everybody else sees. So I I understand why it might be hard for some people. But I mean, the consequences of of not staying focused are much greater than the consequences of continuing to use. Um. Okay, so you get out in 2009. What's your uh, what's your first step? Man, that was the hardest thing. I got out actually two two weeks before 2010, in December of uh, 09. And 
I waited though about a couple of days because I had to go see my parole officer and all that. And I got that out of the way. Coach Osborne was still the athletic director at Nebraska at that time. God, man, I I walked up those steps and walked by his statue to go into the stadium and got on the elevator to go to the third floor. And by the time that third that door opened on the third floor, I probably was about two inches tall. And I took that long walk to his office. And when I walked in there, I was just, I mean, he was, he was very welcoming. I was like, Coach, he said, Ricky, come on in, have a seat. And I sit down for a minute, and I, was, I kept, I couldn't hardly look at him because I was just kind of ashamed, you know. Uh, I knew I had let him down, so I just like, man. He said, well, what, what, what are you, what are you going to do now, you know, and, then, and how can I help you? And then I told him my plan. And he sit there for a minute and thought about it, and he says, same thing he's been saying for the last nine years. Ricky, when they call here, we'll be waiting on him. And I'm determined not to let him down. And I'm not gonna let myself down. And I live my life every day to make my parents in heaven proud because they never got to see the Ricky that you're looking at. I was still using when they passed. So I'm on a mission, to say the least. So you are uh, you're a licensed drug and alcohol counselor. Mm-hmm. Um, how much of that have you done? I did it for like the first five years. Then after that, the speaking took off so much, I don't even see clients anymore. I mean, I still have a license, but I don't have time to dedicate to clients because I, you know, when you're a counselor, you have to say, set schedule, eight weeks. Every Tuesday at two o'clock, I need you in my office. That's hard work. Yeah, but helping I, people. Yeah. I mean, what, what did you find was the biggest challenge, you know? Uh, people being forced into treatment. You know, uh, whether it be the, a family member or a spouse or criminal justice system, you know, a judge say you either get help or you go to prison. Because, you know, uh, that's a big part of why I don't do it anymore either because I don't want to try to tell anyone how to live. I don't think that's my responsibility. But if you're really not serious about getting clean and sober and you're only doing it because the criminal justice system is on your back or your 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 significant others on your back or your parents are on your back. If those are the only reason why you want to quit doing it, then I'm not the guy for you. So you were having a lot of conversations with people who were just sort of here but not Yeah, they was here because if they don't get my signature on a piece of paper right. saying that they were doing treatment then they knew they were going to jail. Right. Or they knew their parents were going to kick them out. That type of deal. I, I didn't want to be a part of that. That ain't what I signed up for. Why was motivational speaking more fulfilling? Because I could reach more people. Uh, and then they invented this thing called social media. Then I could also reach people that way because you have to go where the people are. And most people, you know, especially the, the, the audience that I was trying to target, they're not walking around with signs saying, hey, I'm an addict, you know, I need help. But if I could get to them through Facebook, if I can get to them through Instagram or Twitter uh, and maybe encourage someone to say, hey, you know what? This guy's an idiot and he figured it out. I'm not as bad as him. Maybe I can get it together too. That was my, my goal. How many, how many uh, appearances or speeches have you made, do you know? Oh man, I started in 2010. I stopped counting at uh, in 20. 
14. It's like 200 or something like that. No, nah, I stopped counting in, in 2014 at, at 500. 500. So um, I'm, if I had to guess right now over the last three, I'd say somewhere close to 1,000. What's the most... Uh, What's the most unique place that you visited? Oh man, I've been in some towns that don't even have red lights. I've been <laughs> in. Uh, I think one of my uh, largest speeches was at North Platte High School. There was like fifteen hundred kids in the auditorium. You know, they give me an hour and a wireless mic. I thought that was pretty fun. Uh, I actually, uh, this past Saturday, I was in Omaha. And I, I try to do that at least once a month. It's a DUI drug offender class for probation. I try to do that once a month when my schedule allows. But I just like uh, I like dealing with people so that they can't use their typical excuses. You know, like say for example, a lot of high school kids when you start talking to them about drugs and alcohol, see, parents can't afford to say, "Well, I used to smoke pot," so. I know what it can do to you, or I took pills. Then they discredit themselves in their kids' eyes. Because the kids will turn that around. These kids are smart. They'll turn around and go, Dad, you said you smoked pot, you did pills, look, you made it all. You know, let me live my life. But see, I can go in there and say what parents can't say. Because I can say, okay, yeah, I did all that, dude, and I was, I was smart than everybody, especially my parents, but this is where it led me. Everybody don't come back from where I went. I mean, a lot of, like I said, a lot of my friends are dead. So, you know, I, and then I also, I had the ability to be spiritual, which was a gift within itself to me, because I'll give you a great example. Uh, in the 1984 Orange Bowl, back then they didn't have the technology they have now. Uh, Coach Osborne tell me to play in my ear. I'm standing right next to him. He tell me to play. I run into the huddle. I tell Turner Gill, he repeats the play twice to the huddle and set a snap count, and we do this under 24 seconds. And in the 1984 Orange Bowl, which everybody likes to talk about because we went for two and didn't get it, one of the last plays I carried in was, Coach said, Ricky, tell Turner, I right, 51 fate, wingback reverse left, wingback motion, I back flat protect, and Ricky, if the monster fires, tell Turner to check 49 pitch. Get in there. And I slowed it down so you and your audience could understand. <laughs> See, you, that came from a 25-year cocaine addict. I know God spared my mind. I know he spared me. I'm very humble about that, and I'm not ashamed of that. You know, a lot of times, you know, people don't, don't say God. Don't Well, you know what? I may not say God, but I can say a power greater than me. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to not give credit where credit is due. Does that law still bother you? What now? Does that orange pull still bother you? No, not at all. Because we were 12 and 0. We were number one team in the nation. We did not go to Miami for the third straight year to tie. That was not what we got on the plane to go down there to do. We went to win. I mean, it is what it is. It's just sports. I I'm very proud of that decision. Coach Coach and I have talked about that as well, and you know we still stand by the decision. Ricky, there's a moment um, you get good enough at this stuff and you recognize sort of the moments in a speech, in a motivational speech, when the, when the audience perks up, mm -hmm. when they're, the moment that you, that maybe you got them, you got their attention. Uh, what do you, what do you come back to in your speeches to accomplish that? 
Oh, I just um, that's a good question. Actually, what what are what, are, uh, what do you tell people that that you find most effective? Put it that way. I just say like more than anything, I let them know that I'm sicker than them. Because see, no one really wants to be told they're sick, because that's like an insult. And uh, when I sh when I let them know that I'm a genius, and I went from the NFL to prison multiple times. I got your attention. If I don't have anything else, I've got your attention. And then when I explain it to them how all this happened, I mean, I came from a good family. Most of them came from good families. I just made a couple of choices, you know, on the weekends with my buddies. My peers were more important than my parents. So I did a couple of things and it got carried away. That's 90% of America's kids. I mean, Nobody grows up saying, yo, man, one day I'm going to be an addict, dog. That's what I want to be. No, it doesn't happen like that. It it kind of sneaks up on you, and before you know it, you're there. I mean, you can go interview any homeless person on the street. Some of them people probably weren't, were probably once very successful. What insight have you gained? I mean, the, the, the opioid crisis that's, you know, ravaging communities over oh, yeah. the last five or ten years. Right. Uh, what has your experience taught you about that and how maybe America can get out of that? Well, I have my personal uh, views. They're not very popular with, with America's culture or America's government. You know, I, I feel like um, anything that America wants to stop, they can stop. Uh, Regulations on maybe the pharmaceutical industry, whatever, but I don't know, man. Maybe, uh, in my personal opinion, I hate to say it, but they're making a lot of money. You know, it's just like the legalized marijuana. I mean, they're making a lot of money. And it's, you know, maybe in 10 years after they've made billions, then maybe they'll, they'll look at it and go, well, maybe we are hurting people and, you know, you'll get this commercial where, if you smoke marijuana legally, legal marijuana, you'll, you're eligible for a cash settlement for da 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 and it'll give you a couple of million. Well, if I made $10 billion, I, I, I can part with a million. So, I mean, I just, this opioid thing, I think it's a, I think it's a serious problem. Unfortunately, uh, I just don't really have an answer on how to stop it other than education and, and more prevention type stuff. But no one wants to put money in that. So therefore, let the criminal justice handle it, the criminal justice system. And once the criminal justice system gets involved, then that's a whole different monster all on its own because it's, it's about numbers too. You know, so I mean, it's, a, it's real easy for me to see. It's just real hard for me to get other people to see it. But I love the challenge, and I will continue to do that. Was prison effective for you? Prison is prison was. Uh, if you're if you're asking, did it help me? No, it didn't help me at all. Uh, like I said earlier, that letter that someone believed in me, and the fact that I was willing to give up my way of thinking and turn my life over to a power greater than me—that's what helped me. That's what still helping me. Uh, prison to me was like a human warehouse business. That's the way I took it because 
there's more drugs in prison than there is out here. You know, so you got to make some choices at some point. Destroys a lot of families, doesn't it? Oh, that's, I mean, that's what it does. I mean, I'm not mad at anybody, but that's what happens. Do you have influence with former players? I mean, it, I talk are with, there former players that you can help, you think? Yeah, well, I, I mentor actually three of them right now. Really? Yeah, and that was via Coach Osborne sent them my way. Um, they might get mad at me for putting their names out there, but I'm going to do it anyways. I, uh, Terrell Farley, Willie Miller, and I've recently taken on Joe Sims. So those are three guys in particular. And I help a lot of others, but... I think they're they're not ready. Where's Joe Sims at? He just left my office about an hour before oh, you yeah? got here. Yeah, he came by. I wondered about him. Yeah, he's doing well. Yeah, we're he's free now, and we're uh, we're working on some stuff. So we're, uh, we're we're on schedule. I think Terrell Farley and Willie Miller are two in particular that I'm very pleased with the progress that they've made. Uh, Terrell actually calls me every day for the last three plus years. Wow. You know, and that, that that's huge because, you know, nobody wants to be accountable anymore. And that's one of the, that's a must if you want to, if you want my help. I mean, Coach Osborne may recommend them, but I always quickly let them know I'm not Coach Osborne. You know, this is how this is going to play out. And if that's going to be a problem, good luck. Have a nice day. Because my thing is, this, when you're in this addiction world that we're dealing with, the, the one bad choice you make, very rarely do people go, oh, man, you just made a poor decision. You know, you'll be okay. You know, it's like me. If I go out right now after being clean and sober nine years and counting, I go out today and go get some cocaine, and I get caught by the police. The last nine years is not what people are going to talk about. They're not going to say, man, you know, he's been in all these schools all over America. He's been helping, you know, former players. He's also been going to churches and prisons and universities. They're not going to talk about that. Man, did you hear Ricky Simmons got caught? They'll, they'll look at it as hypocrisy, in fact. Pretty much. See, there again, there again accountability. That's why every day, 24 hours. I, my day starts at 3 in the morning, and it ends about 6 in the evening on the average, unless I have an appointment or a speech or something. Uh, people laugh at me all the time when I tell them I go to bed at 6 o'clock. Do you go to bed at 6 o'clock? If I don't have an event, yeah. Yeah, I'll go to bed at 6 o'clock. I don't care that it doesn't get dark till 9. <laughs> I mean, the sun, sun ain't in my basement. <laughs> you know. But see, at 2.30 in the morning, I get up and I turn my life over to Christ every morning. So by 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm up and I'm starting my day. But sometimes by daybreak, I might even need a nap. But that's how I live because of the choices I've made in the past. Addiction is relentless, isn't it? Oh, it, it's doing push-ups right now in the parking lot. I got to walk right by it to get to my car. And I'm fine with that. I understand that. See, that's what makes it easier for me. When you know what to look for, I mean, if you fall for that, you just, you just wanted to make a bad choice. It's all about choices. And that's what I'm about. But you got to have your eyes wide open. All the time. That's why I don't drink alcohol. I don't smoke cigarettes. I don't do any illegal drugs. I don't do nothing. I drink water. I keep cases of spring water in my house, in my office. Uh, I splurged the other day and had a raspberry tea. I was living on the edge. <laughs> what do you think your mom and dad would say now? That's a really good question. Uh, I would 
think that my mom would probably just smile and and you know and be happy. And my dad, I'm pretty sure his reaction would be a little different. It'd probably be more along the lines of, "It took him long enough," you know. But I think he's he might finally be getting it. But I can live with that. Thanks for listening to Where I Come From. If you want to access other episodes in this series, go to omaha.com slash podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Thanks to Bird Creek for the music. If you have feedback on this episode or any other, please drop me an email at dirk.chatelaine at owh.com. Thanks for listening.